Welcome to another episode of Let's Talk ID. I'm Barb Alexander, president of IDSA. Today, I'll be speaking with Dr. Luciana Borio. Dr. Borio is an ID physician who completed dual fellowships in ID at Johns Hopkins, as well as critical care medicine at the NIH. Over the course of her career, she has served as acting chief scientist of the FDA, director of the FDA's Office of Counterterrorism and Emerging Threats, and from 2017 through 19 on the National Security Council as Director for Medical and Biodefense Preparedness. This past November, Dr. Borio was appointed by President Biden to serve as one of his 13 members uh, on his transition COVID-19 advisory board. So I'm delighted that she's able to take a few minutes to provide her insight for us um, regarding the national response to the pandemic, as well as the public health uh, preparedness moving, moving forward. Before talking with Dr. Borio, let me just take a few minutes to give you a brief update regarding IDSA activities. First, I would just say that IDSA continues our close collaborative relationship with the CDC. Actually, the board of directors meets with the CDC every other week. And, and the purpose of these meetings is really twofold. Um, the first is to make sure that IDSA is on target with the support that we're providing CDC but also that IDSA is able to translate any issues that are arising from the front lines that we may be hearing about from our members so that CDC can address those issues in real time. In support of our ongoing partnership, we have been awarded a $3.2 million cooperative agreement um, from CDC. And uh, you know, we're super excited about this. The main purpose of this funding is to uh, make sure that frontline professionals um, are informed with the latest information regarding COVID. So we look forward to um, putting those dollars to good use. Additionally, on the COVID front, I'm, I'm happy to announce that we have nominated, IDSA has nominated Dr. Virginia Banks to serve on the COVID-19 Health Equity Task Force, which has recently been created by President Biden. So uh, we wish Dr. Banks the, the best of luck with that nomination. I'll also um, let you know that on February the 2nd, IDSA hosted a congressional briefing that was attended by over 100 um, legislative staff. The purpose of that briefing was to allow the congressional staff to ask questions of ID experts um, so that we could you know, answer those questions with the latest scientific evidence that we have on COVID. And so by all persons that were in attendance, it was considered to be a great success. So we're really excited about that briefing and how successful it was. Finally, I just wanted to give you a brief update regarding our strategic initiatives. In February of last year, the board of directors appointed a five-member compensation strike team, and they were tasked with developing a strategy to address ID physician compensation. So that strike team has now finalized their recommendations, and the board of directors has now uh, created a 10-member team to move those recommendations forward. So stay tuned on this front, but we're looking forward to hearing from, more from this group soon uh, regarding their work and effort. So with that update, let's turn to our featured guest, Dr. Borio. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here with you today. 
Sure thing. Um, so before we turn to the topic at hand, um, as I was preparing for the discussion today, I have to say I was very intrigued by your remarkable career um, and your interest specifically in regulatory science, which seems to have informed your career choices along the way. So um, for everyone listening and, and in particularly for trainees who may be on the call, can you just tell us a little bit about your career path and, and some of the aspects that you've most enjoyed or any word, words of advice you might have? I mean, I've been very fortunate because I had so many great mentors along the way who were very supportive of my career. Mentors like Harry Mazur of the NIH and John Bartlett at Hopkins. You know, John recently passed away and he was an incredible inspiration to so many of us and so dedicated to IDSA. But it, they made it really easy for me to follow my passion because they're so, so supportive of a career that was not so orthodox at the time. And I also think that it's helpful to have a very supportive family because as you know, I know that our career path is not just a straight line. It's full of ups and downs and having that support system is really essential. And with respect to regulatory science, and I fell in love with it, the FDA's mission in a way, while I was working at the Department of Health and Human Services, HHS, shortly after 9-11. At the time, we were trying to develop vaccines for smallpox and anthrax, it's a long time ago. And everybody would be so frustrated with the FDA, you know, but I was really impressed with them in meetings. And I thought these are like the smartest people I ever met in my life. And it occurred to me that there was a huge disconnect between what people think a regulatory agency does, the perception that it exists to impose hurdles, and what they actually do, which is to make sure that we have access to products that actually work. So, but I felt it was really hard to understand the culture and the processes from the outside. And I really wanted to go in to experience it. And every day that I was there, I was you know, more in love with that mission. It's always interesting to hear other people's experience. And, and it's, it's definitely interesting to hear about how we end up where we do, right? And in and, and every story, you always hear about uh, mentors who are instrumental to people's careers. So uh, I'm sure you're serving as a role model to many, but uh, remind me to chat with you about, um, about maybe volunteering for our mentoring program for trainees during ID week in the future. I, I think that you would be great for that program. I would love to do that. Thank you. Good. Um, okay, so turning back to the pandemic. Um, since the beginning of the pandemic, pandemic, IDSA has uh, been advocating for evidence-based response and for greater national leadership, as well as for more federal resources to just make sure that we have the tools that we need to address the pandemic and, and to bring it under control. Um, President Biden has repeatedly stated that he's committed to sci a science-driven response. And I will say that the current strategy um, seems to reflect many of the recommendations that uh, we're hearing from medical and scientific communities. IDSA met with um, your, the Biden-Harris um, Advisory Board on two different occasions um, to answer questions and, and offer recommendations. But can you help us understand um, the, the, the role of the Advisory Board? What was the, say, the, the intersection between your work on the Advisory Board and um, the actual development of the administration strategy? Do you, do you think the Advisory Board really had a significant input into the key elements? I absolutely do. So the board was created to help the incumbent administration prepare for addressing the pandemic on day one. And there was a whole team that had been working on policy issues for months, you know, a great, very dedicated team. 
And our job was to really come together as a team, people who really were very insistent also on evidence and following the science to discuss some of the most challenging aspects. You know, how do we address some of the real hard decisions? Because sometimes there's not an obvious right answer, but having that amazing group, diverse group of individuals, all super experienced in their own way with different backgrounds really helped, I think, shape uh, some of the early decisions of this administration. And again, from the beginning, the idea was that we needed to lead with science and data uh, and the understanding that the challenges were you know, very significant. Actually, I'll say it, it was very reassuring um, to see how closely the components of the strategy actually do in fact align with many of the recommendations that, that we put forward from IDSA. So let's talk for a minute about the administration's vaccine implementation plan. You know, IDSA is actively lobbying Congress to, to get the funding necessary to support uh, the plan. Uh, and hopefully that's going to result in more funding for the states and local health departments to have dollars uh, and the resources they need to um, distribute and administer the vaccine. But there's a persistent concern about vaccine supply. And we've all heard that the, the current administration had, has mentioned um, using the Defense Production Act to help ramp up vaccine production. Can you tell us a little bit more about what specifically is being done um, to increase production? And I guess more importantly, what do you think the state's can expect uh, in the near future or, or how and when we might see an impact on vaccine availability? Now, a few, a few points there. One is that funding is absolutely critical to be able to support this vaccination program, right? The idea of translating vaccines into vaccinations. We hear that a lot. I also think it's important to acknowledge the success of Operation Warp Speed. It wasn't perfect, absolutely not perfect. But I think it did reflect the work of hundreds of people working around the clock, civil servants at HHS, at the DOD, Department of Defense, coming together with private industry to make this work. And there's been some criticism uh, of the operation because it didn't really go the last mile to thinking about like, how do we get the vaccines into, into people's arms? But you know, I am of the perspective that General Perna delivered on the mission that he was assigned. He's a military guy. That was the mission and then he delivered. There were some bad decisions made by political leaders like defining success as delivery vaccines to the states and then not supporting the states to go then the last mile. And there's been of course major adjustments in the strategy with the new administration. So they're buying more vaccines and they're also working to make sure that those vaccines, those doses are turned into vaccinations. Now, there's been a lot of discussion about DPA to ramp up vaccine supply. Now, what I can tell you is that the DPA has been already aggressively used, has been being used from the beginning of Operation Warp Speed hmm. and uh, very successfully, you know, it's a very, very helpful tool to the vaccine manufacturers that are competing for a limited finite supply of materials that go into the vaccine uh, development manufacturing. And the vaccine, supply will begin to plateau to a very nice level around March. And, um, but again, that was already you know, in the process before the new administration. I think what we'll see now is that if we want more, we'll need to expand the industrial base. It'll take more than DPA to really increase the number of doses that we buy. And, uh, and let's not forget then of the four S's 
that we need to be able to, to distribute them, right? The supplies, we need the sites, we need the staff and the systems to do that. And the new administration is um, paying attention to all the different components, not just making sure that you know we have vaccines in vials, but we want vaccines into arms. IDSA and the CDC present the COVID-19 Real-Time Learning Network. Timely COVID-19 information curated by clinicians for clinicians. Be the first to know. Visit IDSA's COVID-19 Real-Time Learning Network for the latest COVID-19 resources for the frontline healthcare community. Go to COVID19LearningNetwork.org. Let's turn to masking. (laughs) We all know this remains one of the most critical prevention tools that we have um, currently. But there's been uneven adoption of masking across the country. The current administration almost immediately introduced new policies requiring masking on federal property um, and in public uh, and on public transportation. Can you tell us uh, anything about the impact of these policies? It's a little bit soon to say, but we know that it's very important that the evidence to support masking and the benefits of masking keeps growing. I think the president is doing a lot to make sure that it's clear that there's a clear communications around masking. And he's also leading by example. He wears a mask in the Oval Office. He wears a mask when meeting with others. I have friends who are working in the White House before the transition. And they say that, you know, it was not a good thing to even show up with a mask. And now that everybody's masked in the building. <laughs> Um, But, you know, it does worry me that we see at this point uh, governors such as Governor Reynolds of Iowa rescinding mask mandates. This is just the wrong time to do that. Mm -hmm. And um, and this is how our country is organized, that the states have some say in what happens. And I think people need to really be aware of how critical, you know, they can play a role in this pandemic by masking up to help their communities to support the economy, to support our health. Um, you know, they're considering mailing a mask to each household. I don't know yet if they'll do this, but even the discussion is reassuring. And I think it would be a really important step to send the right message and make it easy to people to wear masks and wear it the right way. So the Biden administration is considering this. That's right, yes. A mask to every person. <laughs> okay, that's great. Um, so, um, well, you know, IDSA collaborated with the Ag Council for our Mask Up uh, America public health messaging campaign, and, you know, it was designed to encourage everyone to wear a mask when in public. But um, I don't know, do you, is there, is there more you think we can do from, you know, the IDSA perspective to help encourage mask use? Yeah, I think IDSA has been remarkable in, in its, you know, activities around pandemic. I think there is. I think that a lot of physicians really look up to ID physicians into not, you know, not just to consult about their patients, but to consult about their own choices. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that, uh, it, you know, it's, it's very important to have that voice on the mask up campaign. COVID has had a disproportionate impact on communities of color. And, um, and the current president has expressed his commitment to health equity in the COVID response. I mean, you heard me mention earlier that um, IDSA has nominated Dr. Virginia Banks to serve on his newly created health equity task force. Um, But can you tell us more about his plans to address health equity? Yeah, so one of the first things he did, as you know, was to announce the establishment of the task force and he appointed Dr. Marcella Nunes-Smith as his point person to address health disparities. You know, it's just so powerful when the issue of health disparities is woven into the fabric of this government Every discussion we had during the transition, 
included discussions about health disparities and how to um, mitigate them. I see this in like two separate, two, two issues. One, a very immediate ones around COVID, ensuring a fair and equitable distribution of COVID vaccines. And then some longer horizon ones, such as a need to address the longstanding disparities that exist in our society and our healthcare system. Uh, so I think they have the, their, their work cut out for them. I don't have so much visibility on what the longer term plans are uh, for the more systemic issues. Uh, but for the vaccines, they're taking you know, very, very assertive steps to mitigate the, the current uh, situation where you know, just the first few months of this immunization campaign, over 60% of vaccinated individuals were white compared to just over 5% who are black and a little bit over 11% that were Hispanic. And today they announced, the administration announced that it will begin shipping COVID vaccines to community health centers next week. And the, the goal is to reach some of the nation's you know, most vulnerable populations. I think they, these health centers reach nearly 30 million patients per year. So it's a significant amount. And they have facilities that do serve these uh, underserved populations and can be really central to the vaccine campaign. Now, you know, we have to just also, one thing that we learned from this pandemic is that there's not a single magic bullet or step that it has to be a holistic program. So continue to work on information, and to counter misinformation, and importantly, to improve access, just not by providing vaccines, but making it easy for people to be able to access vaccines. They're talking about sick leave, and there's a whole wraparound services that exist to be able to enable people to make the right choices for themselves and their families. That's critical, right? Helping um, to approve access and make access easy. In your prior roles at the FDA, I know, um, or I heard you mention before that you put on your experiences during the H1N1 pandemic to change the approach that was used to generate evidence-based information in the subsequent Ebola and then Zika outbreaks. How have these cumulative experiences informed the current thinking within the FDA regarding the best regulatory approaches for getting um, new therapies and vaccines into the public during public health emergencies? Yeah, it's, it's really hard to say. Uh, I do think that the Office of Vaccines did it very well. And I think we are now very, you know, we have the fruits of that work. Um, you know, when I was there, I was the point person and I would regularly convene the physician scientists, the lawyers to really work through the best approach. The goal was to like, how do we streamline development? How do we expedite access, but also maintain confidence in the product? How can we be transparent about the uncertainties, the data gaps? And importantly, we did everything we could uh, to make sure that our decisions would not undermine the acquisition of definitive evidence. It was a really important idea that, you know, our actions today not only may, could delay the systematic generation of definitive evidence, which we need, and this is the best time to actually get that evidence very quickly is doing the public health emergency. It takes work because it takes you know, the conduct of clinical trials. Uh, but I found a partner in the NIH. They were very eager to be able to conduct these clinical trials. And you may remember that, you know, for Ebola, a lot of people thought that it was not possible or feasible to conduct trials in West Africa. And that's what the US did. The US led the way. So I think we have to, uh, there will be a lot of lessons learned after this one is over to, to figure out how we can do that 
uh, going forward because we didn't, you know, as a country, we didn't set the best practice, mm-hmm. didn't follow the best practices that we had set in prior epidemics. You know, in response to the understandable desire to get the therapies into patients more quickly, we've seen the FDA grant emergency use authorizations to some COVID therapeutics without really having sufficient data to inform their use. And that ultimately leaves the clinicians in a pickle, right? I mean, it's such a challenging situation. We don't know um, if and and when to use certain products or certain drugs. In contrast, the FDA issued a very uh, set of clear benchmarks through a guidance document for vaccines that the vaccines would need to meet in order to receive um, authorization. And I think that guidance helped speed to market vaccines that we can confidently recommend to our patients. So do you think the FDA is or should consider similar guidance for COVID-19 therapeutics? Yeah, I think the Offset vaccines really did a really great service. And I would like to be able to see the same being applied to therapeutics, but it's important to realize that the Offset vaccines had a point of view and they had how they wanted this to be rolled out. It's great to have guidance, but I think there must be, there needs to be a conversation uh, within FDA about what is their intended goal for these therapeutics? You know, is the goal to meet the statutory standards for the EUA? which is a very low standard and designed to give FDA a lot of flexibility in decision-making, or um, is, you know, so the standard be, you know, the statutory standard, but also some policy decisions that overlay on that to make sure that the decisions do not impede, again, the, the generation of evidence that is what, you know, we as clinicians and patients really want us to, to have to be able to provide quality care. I mean, you know, 50% of hospitalized patients in America received hydroxychloroquine. You know, more than 150,000 individuals received convalescent plasma, you know, based on observational data. Uh, and not only these therapies were given with you know, lack of data to support their use, but there's no doubt in my mind that they have actually delayed and interfered with the conduct of randomized controlled trials for therapies that uh, we would by now know more definitively whether they help or harm. Mm. So I hope we don't repeat these mistakes going forward. You've mentioned um, clinical trials <laughs> and the clinical trial infrastructure. I think, you know, th- this is another major issue, right, um, for, for this and future public health emergencies. So um, clearly we've had trouble enrolling uh, in the therapeutic trials, particularly in the outpatient setting. Um, and most of the clinical trials, I would venture to say, have only been offered at the large academic centers. You know, we, we also know it's critically important to um, include populations that are disproportionately impacted, but those uh, populations may also be uh, persons who, for valid reasons, may be wary of research. Is there a plan to strengthen and improve the national clinical trial infrastructure so that we can um, address some of these issues? There is a plan and I hope that you know, we bring it to fruition. And there are so many opportunities today to be able to make uh, access to clinical trials uh, m- more available to, to patients everywhere. You know, The common rule that governs human subjects research allows for single RFEs. We have electronic health records. We have large medical systems that have a footprint, not only um, 
in urban, you know, tourist, very sophisticated medical centers, but also in the communities. So why aren't we leveraging all of this to be able to conduct um, more pragmatic clinical trials instead of having them still, you know, be conducted in this parallel universe? And um, I think there's a, there's a lot of opportunity. And I think that there's so many unknowns in infectious diseases, uh, even when we don't have a pandemic, that <laughs> such an infrastructure would be wonderful for the study of infectious diseases, regardless of whether we are studying uh, of specific countermeasures for an emergency use. It's gonna be difficult to get there just because the systems that exist today have served us so well for so many years. And it's always very challenging to create disruption in that system, but we must do better. We can't uh, you know, wait six months and repurpose very sophisticated clinical trials to be able to evaluate products during emergencies and then have them be quiescent in the interpandemic period. When I, when I insist on this idea of like conducting you know, randomized controlled trials and that the EUA is not really the the way to do this doesn't serve us, our patients well. It does weigh heavily on me, and I know that it's you know it's not that easy to, to conduct these randomized controlled trials. And I hear from clinicians everywhere that uh, if that was made a little easier, the idea of giving things off label or without evidence wouldn't be so attractive. Right, right. I think that you hit on something that's really important to recognize that it's not just bringing it a study into a site, it's having the infrastructure within a site to be able to run a clinical trial. Um, that's, that's also critically important. We're very encouraged that the administration seems to not only be focusing on um, responding to the current pandemic, but maybe also starting to, to take steps or think about preparing for the next one. Um, so hopefully we can finally meaningfully get some traction in this area. I did listen to your TED talk, uh, <laughs> which was on this topic and that you, you actually recorded pre-pandemic, right? So several years pre-pandemic, uh, but which in that talk, you eerily described the current situation that we find ourselves in. I mean, I was just amazed at, you know, how closely you hit the nail on the head with your description. So it's clear you spent a lot of time talking about or thinking about emerging threats and national preparedness. So I guess, you know, just my closing question for you is, do you, do you have specific thoughts that you'd like to leave us with, or are there other things that we should or can be doing to help um, organize um, and help prepare for future pandemics? Well, first of all, you're doing so much, and I want to thank you for the work you're doing. I mean, I'm so proud to see IDSA standing for science and producing such you know, helpful science-based rigorous guidelines to help clinicians care for their patients. I mean, it's really, it's, it's remarkable, not only just in diagnostics and therapeutics and all the education you're doing. So I'm just very proud of the organization. Now, in terms of what's next, I think that let's recognize that this won't be the last one. Uh, even though um, Larry Brilliant says that epidemics are inevitable, epide pandemics are, are optional, I think that's true, but we'll be dealing with public health emergencies in the future. And um, so let's not get complacent about them. You know, the lesson learned that practice to practice evidence-based medicine, especially during the emergencies, it doesn't go away because we are in an emergency. And if the evidence doesn't exist, you know, let's work together to generate it. The best care is compassionate care. It's evidence-based care. It's meticulous and detailed care. And it doesn't always involve 
um, repurposing a, a drug that can put our patients uh, at risk. And I really think that ID physicians are such role models for, um, for medicine. And with the way we approach you know, our patients, we were on, uh, we have been advocates for our patients for so long. And, um, and what I said, I meant it, that consults are not just for the patient care. A lot of clinicians seek out ID input for their own decisions. So um, let's, you know, set, let's be the role model that um, we want to see because they will look to see if we are being vaccinated and what decisions we're making with respect to wearing a mask and uh, adhering to social distancing. Um, you know, we set, we set a very important role for other clinicians. Thank you so much for joining me today. I, it's been a pleasure um, speaking with you, getting to know you. I look forward to working with you in the future, I hope. It seems like we've got so much to do, still to do. Um, but hopefully, you know, this, this experience will encourage our national leaders um, to take the necessary, necessary steps to um, strengthen the public health response and uh, infrastructure um, moving forward. So again, thank you for your insight. And, um, and thank you all for joining us um, today. It's my pleasure. Thank you.